This is On Being's Unheard Cuts. I'm Krista Tippett. You're listening to my unedited conversation with Jacob Needleman. He's Professor Emeritus of Philosophy at San Francisco State University. I spoke with him on August 6, 2003, from the studios of APM in St. Paul, Minnesota. He was in the studios of public radio station KQED in San Francisco. This interview is included in our show, The Inward Work of Democracy. Download the MP3 of that produced show at onbeing.org. As you wrote your book, and Mm -hmm. just have you tell some of the stories that you got inside about the spiritual sensibilities of the founders. Does that make sense? Yes, it's okay. fine. Okay, I'll, great. I'll, just, I'll follow your lead. All right, yeah, follow my lead. Well, and then this will be this will be edited and and this will be edited. Um, what I think we're going to do right now is a program that has two voices: you and Diana Eck of the uh, Pluralism mm-hmm. Project, which is which is you know sort of taking that idea into the future in a way. How mm-hmm. the, how these new religious uh, mindsets and 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 practices might be changing. Um, our the religious sensibility. So, I'm excited, and it will be we'll be finishing it in in the fall. But yes, it will be edited down. I'd like for us to talk for about an hour, I think, and okay. see where we come out. Um, so, I, well, I ask if it's going to be edited. Is yes, that if yes. I say something really stupid, yes, don't be on the exactly. Okay. And if you feel like correcting yourself or going back, we get to have a free flowing conversation. It's not live, and there's no pressure that okay. way. Okay. Okay. Very good. Um, how are we doing? Should we start? Should we roll? Um, I'm all right. You're yeah. all right? I think we're okay. I'm sort of talking through the glass. Oh, you're talking. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. Let's go. Um, Let's go. Well, yeah. You know, I want to start with uh, you know, sort of where you start in talking about how what the, 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 the focus of this work um, that you did the soul of oh, it's the soul of America, right? The American soul. The American, the American soul, soul, right? Is the, the title of the book. You yeah. know that you grew up in Philadelphia, <laughs> one of these great yeah. places in our nation's uh, history and the history of our democracy, but you really had no interest in that aspect of American history. So you know, tell me. Well, I had. Yeah, tell me, yeah. Well, I had no interest in any aspect of American oh, history. Okay. The way I was, <laughs> I, the way I was taught in uh, when I was a kid. And the way things were drilled into us in Philadelphia, uh, everybody was supposed to be so proud of being at the cradle of the birth of America and all that. Yeah. And, but history was made, for me, so incredibly boring and uh, so uh, and so out, out of, irrelevant to anything that I was interested in that um, I paid no attention to it at all. And um, I sort of grew up with a kind of allergy to American history, except, uh, you know, the, all these people in wigs and buckled shoes and uh, powdered wigs and <laughs> everything like that, and you know, all the things we were being told, how wonderful we were. And it, was, it was never presented in any really way that I could feel great interest in. At the same time, in my my guts, in my heart, there was a love for America, and um, I was I felt I was an American, and I felt something great about being in America. And uh, but it didn't have to do with the official history, and I didn't couldn't put my finger on what it was. In any case, I uh, went up when I grew up and went to school and went to university and specialized in philosophy, and then wound up in the, the study of religious traditions that, to my amazement, I became more interested in religion than I ever had been in anything else, <clears throat> but in the deeper spiritual dimension of religion, not so much in the social and sectarian aspects of it, the ritualistic side on the surface of it, but uh, the deep, uh, f- mystical, philosophical, spiritual dimension of religion. And as we converse, I think we should try to make a distinction which is getting more and more familiar between what we might call spirituality mm-hmm. and what we might call religion. Right. And so independent of any interest at all in America, I became deeply interested in this great spiritual traditions and, and I began to discern that underneath them all, all the great religious traditions of uh, and spiritual philosophies of the world, there was a common vision of mankind, humanity, who we are, what we're supposed to be, the concepts of the self and the universe. And I tried, and uh, and please correct me if I'm going on too long. No, no. I, an to, yeah, no, go uh, on. And, I, I, yeah. and, and my whole work as a philosopher uh, was to try to make a bridge, find the bridge between 
this great vision, uh, spiritual vision that was at the heart of all religions, and a bridge between that and all the real aching social, political, psychological, cultural problems of our era. And all the works that I have done have been an attempt to make a bridge between those two to see what light this great vision throws on our problems of our actual that we actually face. And at some time ago, years ago, about 10 or 12 years ago, I realized one of the great aching questions of our time was, what is America? What does it mean? Uh, who are we? And um, considering the enormous, incredible impact and influence of America on this planet, yeah. uh, this question had to be faced. And though I, I gritted my teeth and went back to American history, thinking, oh, I'll just get, oh, I'll just look and see, and you know, I won't be able to like any of it, but it's a question that has to be faced. And to my amazement, I found a whole new meaning in life in the founding fathers of the country, in the origins of the United States, in the people, and also in the history as it went on, starting with George Washington, right. who I, I really gritted my teeth there. I said, oh, well, this is going to be really boring. Oh, my God, the bad teeth, the cherry tree, who cares? I was stunned when I started reading Washington, his own works and about him, that this really was a great man. And in general, that most of the founding fathers, the, the really most of the really interesting ones, were deeply interested in spiritual questions. Right. And that uh, was a great joy to find that. So you know, I think I'd like to just trace that story that you started learning. I mean, and and as you, when you write and just describe what you learned in this project, um, you know, when you talk about George Washington, you start to identify. American ideals and American and aspects of that Americans consider to be part of our national character that really are given a new meaning by what you saw in the lives yes. of these men. So let's talk about sort of what you found in George Washington that went beyond that, you know, those those well, pictures that we have of him. Well, certainly George Washington, and I want to talk about those ideals for a moment as mm -hmm. such. Uh, but with George Washington, what I was looking for in writing this book was a kind of new story of America, what I call a re-mythologization, yeah. to re recreate a vision of America, that, like a, a, a mythology for grown-up people of our time. And George Washington, what stands out in terms of the, the myth of the character of Washington, what stands out is, of course, the phenomenal fact that he turned away from power. He could have had more power than practically anyone in, in the world after the Revolutionary War. Uh, he was the most revered man, the most, most respected man in America, and he could have been, as one uh, observer had said, he could have been king of America. Yes. But he stepped down from as the head of the army, and he stepped away from political life and simply surrendered his power. Uh, no, very few leaders is... Uh, you, can you find throughout history who have voluntarily stepped away from power like that? And it was not just, I think, only for personal reasons uh, that he wanted to get to a quieter life in Mount Vernon and all that. There was, I think, a sense that he didn't want to be the king, in quotes, of, a, of America. He wanted to be America to be what everybody had wanted it to be, a real democracy, a, de a government of the people. So he did this twice. He did it at the end of the war, and then he did it at the end of his second term of president, when he could have been elected and elected and elected, no matter what arguments and difficulties were going on, he could have continued. And he wanted to, part of his reason for stepping down and not running for the third term, which he could have won, no matter what the Constitution said, he wanted the United States to elect a president in, an, in a democratic election under his approving eye. Had he died and in office as president, there would have been more of a de facto monarchy rather mm. than a real elected president. So he represents to me the, the, the sacrifice of one's own personal uh, egoistic desires for power for the good of the country. But what I and think he, is, so, you know, what I think is interesting as you trace this in the book is 
you don't idealize these people. I mean, you, you talk about their full humanity and, oh, how, sure. and how George Washington was an extremely ambitious and powerful person, right? But yep, that it's yes. almost sort of a spiritual discipline <laughs> that this aspect of surrender also comes into his behavior. I think so, and I think that element is there. I think we, we tend to either idealize these people or or, or um, demonize them in a way, and and it's, neither one is relevant. What we want are heroes, our, our symbols that represent our values, and, and no question historically that Einstein had, Einstein, Washington had a spiritual dimension to his life, he, very strongly. He wished for virtue. He tried for virtue. So... He is yes. He's not a tin saint, and he's not just an ordinary guy who happened to luck out and be the most powerful man in America. He he was something special. He was a great man. He was fully human, but he also had this dimension, and it's this dimension we need to we need to focus on. Tell me what you learned about him that surprised you the most. Was it that that aspect of surrender? Well, there was that aspect of surrender, that aspect, but also something that he had which is hard to find a word for, which we need to understand. He had what we might call presence. He had what we might call a quality of being, a quality of character that I hadn't, didn't expect to find. All accounts of him, all accounts of his presence, all accounts of the influence that he had on people are signs that this was a human being of unusual personal character. The, the whole question of character has gone out of our vocabulary, and it's, because it's been co-opted by maybe some political movements or so forth. But he was a real—this uh, will really sound odd to you, but um, I, grew up in a, I, I grew up in a Jewish household, and there's only one word in the Jewish, the Yiddish language, for a person of real character who's a real human being. There are a thousand words for a fool in the Yiddish language. There's only one word for a real human being, and that's mensch. And George Washington, he was a mensch. He had, he could, he had balance in himself. He was tried to be impartial. He tried to bring together, divide. He hated the whole idea of the spirit of party. He 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 believed that this country could, with through its the great the greatness of its constitution and its spiritual dimension could become a beacon to the world, which, in fact, it did become. So he brought the religious dimension into the political organization of this country without bringing the sectarian dimension of religion into it. You know, of all the, the founding of the founding figures that come immediately to mind, I think George Washington is the one who I have the least associations of, of, religious, of like religion that. with. Um, I mean, tell me more about what you learned about his religious... Life. Well, if you look at his biography, certainly he had a great deal of, uh, when he was young, a great deal of interest in self-improvement, self-discipline. And uh, he was, we, we know historically, we don't know what it means. We don't know how deep it went, but it may have been very deep. He was a Mason, as most of mm. the founding fathers were. Right, yeah, now, I'd the, forgotten the, that. The Mason, I didn't treat the Masonic aspect in my book because that, that I don't didn't need to because the spiritual element we need to discover without going into that. But historically speaking, the Masonic Brotherhood at that time and maybe still is is was a very deeply spiritual organization, very very spiritual in any meaningful sense of the word. So whether that was just a political social uh, advantage for him, or whether in his heart he really. Uh, believed it, I think in his heart he did. So there was that historical fact. And then in many of the most important addresses to the nation, in the farewell address and other other addresses to the nation, he speaks of the absolute necessity of religion as the source of morality. He does not speak of this or that particular religion. And just by speaking of the religious dimension, he is speaking of what I would call spirituality, not necessarily this Protestant or this Christian or this Jewish or whatever. That, that is not the main thing with the founders. Right. Um, and I... Uh, all right, so you used the word self-improvement when you a minute ago in reference to George Washington's character. Yes. There, There is a, a characteristic that Americans claim as their own, as a sort of national virtue. But I want to know what you learned about the way that manifested itself in George Washington's life, that 
that perhaps has different connotations than the ones we think of now? This, uh, well, um, I, I, I say I'm not a historian. I'm mm-hmm. a philosopher. Mm-hmm. And um, philosophers uh, are very good at raising and deepening questions. And um, that's what I tried to do in this book, to, to deepen the meaning of America. Actually, what Washington, how he practiced his religion is a mystery to many people. There, there's not that much the clues about it. But I, I know from what Americans meant in those to that time by self-improvement, it meant virtue. It did not mean becoming happier, better adjusted. It did not mean being able to be more efficient. It did not mean, it meant the improvement in terms of virtue, that is being able to live according to one's moral ideals. And there was a a work at that. It was a practice. Franklin tried it uh, and wrote about it semi-ironically in his autobiography. All of the early early Americans had an element of self-improvement in the sense of virtue. Not, no, it's not so much in the sense of skill at doing practical things. What about um, Thomas Jefferson? What did yes. you learn about Thomas Jefferson that you didn't know before, that's not part of our stereotype? Well, it's not so much what, what I learned that's new, but that the things that I learned, most of them I already knew, mm-hmm. but I felt them much more deeply when I started reading Jefferson. Uh, his ideals about democracy, of what the democratic process is supposed to be, I saw were very, very sophisticated psychologically. Uh, the ideal of, and, and I think what Jefferson brought, we need, to, we need to see in the light of very ancient spiritual traditions about what it means, what human beings owe each other in terms of how they relate to each other's ideas, views, and opinions. He was, a, I think, a master at understanding the process of coming to a consensus, coming to a communal understanding of listening to the other, of relationship of one human being and one group and one party to another. And where do you see that at Yet, work? In, in Well, in, in his writings you mm-hmm. see it very often in his letters about the problems of the democratic process and the difficulties that are going on between one sect and one party and another. Uh, no, no doubt in his life he was a very, also a very ambitious, not always a, a sweet, virtuous guy. He didn't get to be president just by sitting around and then preaching good, good tidings. He was a, he would, all these guys were great political, very clever political people at the same time. Yes. But you see it in his writings, in his speeches, in his, uh, in his the profession of his ideals. And of course, we all know, with some help, he is the great articulator of the de- of the dem- of the Declaration of Independence, the author of the Declaration of Independence, and the one who insisted when he was in France, uh, when the Constitution Convention was was being uh, concluded, who insisted to Madison and to others that we have a Bill of Rights put in, and. He was the representative of human human rights, and we need to say something at some point about human duties that go with the rights. But he was the representative of human rights in his articulations, and of course, as I said before, the Declaration of Independence is got the stamp of Jefferson on it more clearly than any of the other founders. When when I have the Declaration of Independence in front of me, I mean, you know, this phrase the laws of nature and nature's God, yep. which is the only time the word God um, appears word God. as such. Yeah. It's nature's God. Open that up for us. What they meant enlight- when they wrote that, yeah. This is an enlightenment uh, concept of the age of enlightenment, which is very profound in a way. It's been trivialized by many people. But the idea that by looking at nature... God, looking at the universe, looking at the laws of nature, looking at, just observing it, just understanding that we're part of nature, independent of any religious teaching, we can conclude by looking at nature that there must be a creator. So the God who created nature, nature has laws and principles and forces in it that are moral as well as physical. Nature operates by laws and, and that point to the good as well as to the, what is true. 
So nature is a testament to the existence of a powerful and good God, according to the Enlightenment. Not And the Enlightenment thinkers, most of them, the best ones, wanted to be free of the tyranny of religious dogma. And so they, they, they tore away from the forms of religious dogma and church and ritual and imposition of faith on the human mind and said, just by the independent activity of the human mind looking at nature, we can conclude there is a God and we can draw conclusions about our moral life from that. And I think this is an important point, too, because the way the Enlightenment has come down a couple centuries later is as something diametrically opposed to religion, right? Or to, yeah. I mean, to any kind of spiritual observation like that, that you could you can deduce that there's that there is a God through just through through the nature that's around you. That's a complete distortion of what many of the greatest Enlightenment thinkers believe. Starting with well, if you take the great German philosopher Kant, uh, a deeply religious, spiritual man, in, in his in his very profound writings, uh, showed through the existence of God. It just wasn't the God of any particular biblical dogmatic teaching. That's okay. all. Mm-hmm. And there are spiritual, in fact, 99% of the human race, of any of the great thinkers of men and women, have been spiritual. It's, uh, it's just that today people associate religion with the most, some of the most surface, superficial, and some of the most uh, degraded aspects of religion. And that, that's a terrible mistake. And part of why I want to show in this book is that a deeper understanding of religion which shows the spiritual dimension of America in a way that has not at all what people think of when they think of religious America. I think you also say that, that all of the founders had their own sort of spiritual sensibility, deep sensibility, and, and they had a, a, a tremendous concern to inject the life of the mind, to apply that together uh, with what is religious. Yes, and that that flowed good. into the way they were creating American democracy. Is that? That's an interesting way of putting it. I think that's very, a very interesting way of putting it. That the the life of the mind is rooted and leads to the life of the spirit. The mind is not the heartless, bloodless, intellectual power that we sometimes think of it these days. A kind of a big computer on the top of the human body. The mind is the psyche, the soul. The mind and the heart are part of one human psyche. So the, the enlightenment mind is not a mind without a heart. It's a, it's a heart with a mind, if you like. It's both together. So the, the, there's a faith that the human mind, and it really works deeply at its, at its best, will come to spiritual truths and be able to apply them to human life as the basis of morality. And it's you know it's 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 true of the, of many of the early even before the founders of course, many of the communities that came and and settled in America, were deeply spiritual communities, very very religious some some of them, and uh, also were very thoughtful and very intelligent. So even right. our modern science was was rooted in a kind of spiritual vision of God's ordering of the universe. Something else that's very interesting that you point out is the importance of Quakerism, um, even among people who weren't necessarily practicing Quakers. But you say that there was a kind of communal mysticism that infused the well, founding there, of our democracy. Well, there were so there were many spiritual communities. Uh, not just the Quaker was one, which we know about, and that was of course surrounding everything in Philadelphia. Yeah. But it was also one that we once many that we don't talk about or know about so much. Um, the German, many of the German mystical, there were some German mystical communities in, that came to the United States, to America, before the Revolution, and. They were in different parts of America, but a lot of them were in the Pennsylvania area. And they had a very powerful influence on many people and brought something, a kind of a, a mystical, mystical is one of those bad words. And then they brought a spiritual vision of community uh, that I think we need to rediscover what that was all about because our own the constitution and our own laws of government in some ways can be seen to echo a deeper meaning of the 
equality, of human equality that you find in the mystical vision of community in the Pennsylvania German communities, but also somewhat in the New England and the deeper meanings of the, some of the Puritan communities. Now, the what way are people, what is the meaning of human equality in this vision? It's not that everybody so much is entitled to the same vote or something. That's That's one aspect of it. But it's that everyone is equal under God. And that means deep down in the human essence, we all are part of some common greatness that we need to respect in each other and rediscover in ourselves. And that the human problem is that we have fallen away from contact with that greatness in ourselves. This is sounds may sound mystical, but it's very pragmatic. And communities were set up throughout America, and particularly on the East Coast, and in particularly in Pennsylvania, which tried to pursue that with some diligence and in a very well-structured communal setting. And all right, so the way you describe that, that that sense of that equality is something that happens before God, and that that is in each of us also presents a kind of contrast to let's say, the the value of individuality that we cherish in modern America. Very good point. Uh, individuality, individualism and individuality have to be separated. Individualism can, be on, can take a turn where it's a kind of egoistic, selfish thing. Me, 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 me. And what I want and what I care, what I think, what I like. And oh, sure, we need to have the liberty to express all that. But that a real individual uh, is a different thing. To, to be truly oneself is to be truly in contact with this great self within, this this divinity within. And the paradox of true individual individuality is that the more you're in touch with what all human beings have in common under God, the more you are uniquely what you yourself are. And that sounds like it's a contradiction, but. A real individual, a real person who can say, I, and really mean it, is also someone who is open to something higher than themselves. But individualism, I think, is a psychological uh, flaw, or the way it's carried too far in our... And that's why I say we need to bring back the, the obligations that go along with the rights in order to understand the depths of what the human rights really mean. Okay. If I may say one more thing about that, yeah. for example, mm-hmm. f- freedom of speech, for example, which we all cherish, uh, is a great right, but freedom of speech does not mean the right just to say what you want, how you want, when you want it, and let the devil take the hindmost. It doesn't mean the right to blab. It doesn't mean you can do whatever, say whatever you want. It doesn't mean you can do that. Nobody's going to punish you unless you're causing harm. But that's just an adolescent aspect of it. Without the obligation that goes with the freedom of speech, we have a very superficial value. Now, what is the obligation? That what is the duty associated with the freedom of speech? And is that was that was that sense of holding freedom and obligation together <clears throat> a central aspect of the founders' I, way of thinking? I think so. Yeah. I think so. But there was such a tyranny they were trying to break away from of the mind that they they were very often they emphasized the rights only. But if they all the assumption always was or always was there were duties associated with it. A democratic citizen is not a citizen who can do anything he wants. It's a citizen who has an obligation at the same time. And just to give you an example, if I may, the freedom of speech, what is the duty associated with it? Well, if you ponder that a little bit, you come to the conclusion very, very clearly that the right of free speech implies the duty of allowing others to speak. If I have the right to speak, I have the duty to let you speak. Now, that's not so simple. It doesn't mean just to stop my talking and wait till you're finished and then come in and get you. It means I have an obligation inwardly, and that's what we're speaking about, is the inner dimension. Inwardly, I have to work at listening to you. That means I don't have to agree with you, but I have to let your thought into my mind in order to have a real democratic exchange between us. And that is a very interesting work of the Mm. human being. Mm. Don't you think? I do, and I I think that that theme, that this idea of democracy being something that is an inward process and act as well as a set of outward structures and laws right. and rules is, is something that resonates all the way through your work. I, I, think, I hope so, because it, it, it's the only thing that's going to really 
revitalize our, our vision of what we are. When I talk to students in university, uh, they're all these days about what I'm trying to say in this book. They're all angry about America, of course, many of them are. And when you go into the depths of their ideals of America, like we're trying now in this conversation, their anger, it's not that they, they lose their judgment against things that America may or may not be doing, but their anger is replaced by a deep interest in the meaning of America. And that's what I hope this book can help. Well, let's talk about some more of these American ideas. Um, I mean, the, the very idea of freedom itself, I think you believe we have a sort of superficial understanding of that. Absolutely. Okay, it's, so. it's become so trivialized that the freedom... It's wonderful to be able to go where I want and do what I want and buy what I want, buy and buy and get and get and talk and talk, and I have no constraints. It's We certainly need... External liberty, God knows, that's one of the most precious things this country has to offer the masses of humanity who have come here. I don't mean to put that down or anyway. Without that, without that, the rest is, is just academic. So we need to hold on to that and come back to that in a moment. But without the inner meaning of freedom and liberty, we have to ask, well, what is this freedom for? It's not just the freedom to get a big house and a big car and a lot of goods. So inner freedom is an, is an idea that has gone out of our, of our conversation. Inner freedom means inwardly to be free from these uh, egoistic, selfish cravings which make our life turn around in chaos. It's an interior freedom which the, is maybe you could say is mystical or certainly spiritual. But it's without that dimension to the idea of freedom, the idea of freedom becomes purely external and eventually selfish. But... You know, is there a place within our democratic structures or elsewhere in our common life to cultivate that kind of inner yes. freedom? Yes. Very good question. There is. And what I'm, I know, I, I, the point is really that I guess the main point of my book is that the meaning of America is that the laws and structure of the American government provide a protection for people to search for the inner freedom. And we are free to search. We are. We have the liberty to get to gather together in communities, to study, to work, to find our own relationship to the the spirit of conscience, which is what makes a human being really a moral and free human being. So America, the government, Thomas Paine and others have made a very important distinction between government and society. Uh, government protects society. Society is the realm where people relate to each other in subtle, uh, aesthetic, ethical, sensitive, spiritual ways. It can't be legislated. It's where the real inner moral life of human beings takes place. Government is an external armor, an external structure, which allows that and protects society. So the, the great purpose of America is to provide a place where people can search to become fully human in themselves. Now, whether there's this or that group doing it, that I, I'm not prepared to say, but it's there as a possibility in this country, and it's still that possibility. Very few countries offer that. We have a strong military. We have a strong constitution. We have all the, with all the warts and all the things wrong with us, it's still possible to say that America is the guardian of the possibility of human beings to search for conscience. Not every country in the world can say that. What did the founders mean when they used the word conscience? Well, it doesn't mean the superego that we and Fro after Freudian psychoanalysis, some socially conditioned, introjected, uh, interiorized form of, of conditioned morality, which is in its fundamental basis merely relative. For the founders and for all spiritual teachings, and by founders, by the way, I want to broaden the founders to include people who came later, including such people, of course, as Lincoln, and yeah. also, one people may find strange, uh, Frederick Douglass and people like that who spoke very powerfully of conscience. Conscience is, I don't know if they meant this by it, but I would assume that many of them did implicitly, but I think we should mean by conscience, is an absolute power within the human psyche to intuit real values of good and evil and right and wrong, 
We are born with that capacity. It's not just socially conditioned into us. This is what the great traditions teach. This is what I think. But it is covered over by a lot of the egoism and uh, chaos of our unfree inner life. You know, uh, the words in the Declaration of Independence um, giving, you know, this right, unalienable right that Americans have claimed since then to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. You know, in some ways that's such an extraordinary phrase. And also I wonder if it's a phrase that stands in contrast to spiritual values and spiritual impulses. Has it gotten us into trouble? <laughs> well, it may have gotten us into trouble. Um, you mean that phrase? Yeah. Gotten it? The well, pursuit it may have gotten of happiness into... at the center of our national life. Yeah, that may have gotten us into trouble because we have an adolescent view of happiness. What is happiness to us? People say, oh, well, I don't know. I just I know it makes me feel good. Well, feeling good, having nice things, it ain't happiness. Everyone, it's happiness, if you look at the depth of the traditions that I'm speaking about, and if you look at your own life, one's own life, happiness doesn't come just from satisfying your desires. That's pleasure. That's very fine. What do you think? That's that, nice to have. What do you think, Go Thomas ahead. Jeff? What do you think Thomas Jefferson understood in that phrase? By, he meant there's no happiness without virtue. Mm. You can't have happiness unless there's virtue, and so for Jefferson, it didn't mean having whatever, just whatever you want. Uh, it meant well-being in the uh, traditions of the, of the, that they studied. Uh, they were very highly educated in classical thought. Happiness is more, a better translation is the word is well-being. And well-being doesn't mean continual or lots of pleasure. It doesn't mean egoistic satisfaction. It means being what you are supposed to be as a human being. Uh, you don't, you don't, you, you can't be happy unless you're actualizing what you really are in your depths. Uh, uh, you can, you can. If you have an animal and you, if you have a cat and you treat it as though it were a dog, you can. No matter what you do, it's not going to be happy. So happiness implies a relationship to a truer self within yourself, and I think Jefferson meant that. You know, and it, life and liberty are this uh, can be related to that. Go right, ahead. I'm sorry. Right. Yeah. Um, in our time, I think the 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 criticism is often leveled that Americans equate happiness with what they have, right? What they yeah, own, yeah. possessions. And you make a, a, a compelling statement about materialism. You say the root of materialism is a poverty of ideas about the inner and outer world. Yes. Well, we have a concepts of happiness, of, of, our, of what we are, that are really very empty sometimes very contradictory, very superficial. But if we look at even our own little experience that we may have, uh, and you look at the, the great teachings which our founders uh, studied, uh, Stoicism, the philosophers of the ancient world, and uh, many, many great uh, moral visions, a human being is happy. We are happiest when we are serving. And that doesn't mean serving some crazy thing either. We are happiness when we are ab- we are happiest when we are able to feel we are part of something greater than ourselves. We're not on this planet, according to these teachings that they, which they all studied. Uh, we're not on this earth just for our own personal satisfaction. We're here to serve our fellow human beings and maybe our God, if we have an understanding of that. And I think if you look in the nature of of the great spiritual traditions, how they look and understand human nature, it's part of the essence of a human being that to love, to, to feel care for others. And we have a very impoverished set of ideas about the human self being just a complicated animal with a complicated brain who evolved out of the slime. That is not a vision that is very profound of what human being is, nor is it very logical. And again, I want you to come back to the connection you've made between that struggle to understand what it means to be human, to be fully human, and the structures and functioning of American democracy. Very Yes. Well, you know, the Constitution itself uh, is a very extraordinary document. Um, 
And the process by which the Constitution was created is an extraordinary process, which I describe and many people have in the book about how all these people with such varied agendas came together in this horrible, hot summer of 17, as one who has lived through many Philadelphia summers, Hot summers. I can only, I can only I've imagine. I've lived through one of those. <laughs> <laughs> what these poor people were suffering there in Independence Hall, and no matter whether it was the early morning or whatever, it's Philadelphia summer is hell. And uh, what they went through and what they came to and how they found that finally wound up having to listen to each other and allow in a reconciling ideas. Uh, about how to structure a government which has, for whatever else you may say about it, has survived and thrived for well over 200 years. In that sense, America is the oldest government in the world at the moment. And I think we need to look at our structure of our Constitution and look at the spiritual principles that are embedded in it without not calling attention to themselves as spiritual. The whole idea that you have to listen to each other. You have to come to a harmonious reconciliation, that you have a structure where parties can come together and hear each other, and perhaps a third principle, a third reconciling force can appear that brings together both of the parties. You have this this brilliant compromise of the structure of the House and the structure of the Senate. You have this ancient vision that was modern, adapted by Madison and all the others of the Constitution, of the three parts of the government, that the executive, the legislative, and the judicial, that they are independent of each other. That is fantastic how those three work together. Now, of course, many of the problems we're having now, have to, are, are, and we always have had in this country, have to do with one part of that uh, triad uh, taking an undue place and where the independence of the three are, is sometimes compromised, as people thought happened in the election of George Bush. But in principle, it's a highly ancient spiritual principle that these three, one is active, one is one is another way, and one is brings it together. And um, that the judicial should be completely independent of the executive and the legislative. This is uh, echoes an ancient law of the threefold nature of reality, that all processes have three forces working together with it. I know I can't go into that too much more deeply now. Yeah. But you can see you can see a lot of metaphysics in the Constitution if you've studied the metaphysics of the spiritual traditions which our founders studied. Is there something in the way we understand and practice democracy in our time that that makes it hard to hear or see those spirit, what you call spiritual strains in our very well, constitution. I think so. I think we're, we're way, way off base now, and we're still we're still correctable. But people haven't. I mean, I may sound arrogant, but we need to think about our country. We need to think about our ideals. People don't think. They don't. Um, on the whole, now I may sound very stuffy, like an old philosophy professor, but which you are, it, it, we, we, which I am. We need to be able to think together about what these things mean. People don't think they use words: freedom, liberty, representational government, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But if you stopped and asked them what they meant by these things, they they're tongue tied, they, or they just shout. On television, people think shouting is thinking. Shouting is not thinking. Uh, uh, Come let us reason together, the prophet says, God says to Isaiah, that what this country, (laughs) I don't want to sound like I'm on a soapbox, but what this country needs is thought. And I think it's, I really think it's possible. You do think it's possible. Oh, yes. I think the moment you start thinking together with someone, they immediately, their eyes light up. They say, my God, I'm thinking. I haven't done that for a while. I must confess, I spoke to, uh, I won't say who, but I spoke to some members of Congress uh, not long ago, and we had a very quiet evening together, and we started opening up just what you and I are doing now, and they said, in effect, you know, we never get a chance to do this. Hmm. We're in there trying to, uh, you know, speak to television cameras or make points with electorates or with, with lobbying groups. But we never, I said, you mean you never come together and just reflect together? And they said, no. And to me, that's the 
dirty secret of America at the moment. That's the problem. Right, and I, I do think of um, the lively uh, thought, you know, again, the life of the mind of the founders and how much reflection and discussion and debate went they into really, creating what we live with now, this democracy. So you're so right. They really, a lot of them were very intelligent, thoughtful uh, and people who really knew how, not just know how to write, but how to think. If you read what they wrote, you're just, you're, you know, you're blown away with the beauty of their, the way they articulate and the way they exchange with each other. So we need more. We need the life of the mind. I know nobody's saying that and nobody's going to get elected on that platform, but we need the life of the mind in this country. And it's there waiting. It's just crying out to be, that's what I found the response to this book is uh, people just are just so happy to see that people are thinking more deeply without partisanship so, so, about the idea. So as a philosopher and as someone who has immersed himself in this, you know, what's the, the, the question you would pose for people to think about? Throw something well, out. <laughs> well, what, is, what are the duties? I was one of the great questions that, that takes us all back. And if we can separate it out from all the right or left wing uh, rhetoric, just step back into our independent mind for a moment and don't worry about whose side you're on or who's good or bad. What are the duties that are implied by our rights? Uh, we know the rights we have. We know their words. What duties do we have? That is a question I would, I would invite people to think about without any political agenda in their mind. And when you think about that together, and I think that's the thing I would say we really need is from each other, is philosophical friendship. We need the people come together to think, not, to, not, not action groups. Those are there waiting, but thinking groups, because out of, out of good thought will come right action. But um, think, what are they? What, are they? what does it mean to listen to another person? What does it mean to try to speak truly or take uh, oh, the, oh, any of our rights that we have? You know, of, uh, look at what, is, what are the obligations of a democratic human being? Um, what, do, what's a, what, what do we have to bring? It's not just that we have to vote. It's not, that's, a, that's important. We have to vote thoughtfully. And, it's, and what's the problem there? Well, we're swamped with information. We're swamped with rhetoric. We're swamped with people shouting in our ear. How to just get back into a quiet place and start thinking about these things? So I would say that's one question that everybody can relate to. What, ought, what are the duties implied by our rights? I want to ask my producer behind the glass. I'm, I'm going to be quiet for a minute. She's going to be speaking to me. If she has some questions for you. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. back a little bit into these models that we have of, of, of trying to practice these virtues that, that are at the founding of our democracy. So, so, you know, make this come a little bit more alive and also talk about what the, the real struggle that there, that there is, even in our iconic figures, that there was to practice these virtues, you know. Um, Tell me some stories about, uh, I don't know, Abraham Lincoln or, or, or George Washington or Thomas Jefferson, where you saw what it took to come out in this place of virtue. We don't know the inner struggle that these people 
went through from time to time. We don't know inwardly what Washington went through when there was so many defeats, when it looked like the war was hopeless, when there was even mutinies sometimes in, in the troops, when they were all starving and hungry and ragtag, when they were facing this overwhelming force of the greatest army in the world, the British army. And, uh, we don't know inwardly what he had to go. There was some stamina there. It wasn't just uh, pulling through in order to win. It, there was some calling that he had that let him, allowed him to be a, a source of great inspiration to the whole country there. We don't know what Lincoln inwardly felt. He know, he, we know he was an ambitious politician, and he was a, we, 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 we know he, when he was elected, he came out of the presidency. Uh, by the time he, the Civil War was well into its, uh, its where it was going, he became much, much, he became humbled by power, which is one of the most interesting things about Lincoln. Not just his face, which I write about as being yes, a, a face which, which, which emanates a human presence, humanness, but he, 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 he the, when he comes out at the end, it's not, people get very cynical sometimes, think, oh, it's just political speech. But if you read the second inaugural and the famous lines about with malice toward none, how do you come out of a war like that and are able to say to your to the people to the enemy, we are all part of one nation with malice toward none? What does it take inside oneself to be able to actually say that? And I believe to mean it, which I think he did mean it. Uh, so it's hard to talk about the inner struggle that people went through, with what a Jefferson went through. Right, and you know, so Jefferson, now we have all this information which has become, uh, which has come to light, and you know, we, we have a very strong sense of the contradictions let's say, in Jefferson, and well, let's just say his full humanity. Um, well, yeah. You know, um, this Jefferson's getting a very bad rap. Uh, maybe he did have an affair with Sally Hammond, so, uh, uh, but you know, and maybe he did have slaves, he did have slaves uh, which yes. he didn't sell. Of course he did, and as did Washington, although he released them after his death. They were released after his death, largely. Uh, but he, many of, let's look at it this way, many, and it's not to whitewash anything, but it's just to retain our heroes, our symbols. Most of the great reformers of mankind were sensitive to the problems they were reforming precisely because they were living in the midst of a social situation in which they themselves were guilty of the crimes that they were trying to reform people from. They were immersed in it. They saw it. It's when you experience it in yourself, as St. Augustine did when he saw his own particular sins and crimes, it's when you experience the forces in yourself that you then become more sensitive. And a great man is not someone who hasn't committed the sin. It's one who understands it and is speaking out against it and is trying to articulate it for others. Jefferson, we don't know what he was struck. He understood what slavery was. He wrote about it. He understood the crime that it was. Uh, and he forged the language and to large part the concepts by which we are judging him. If it weren't for Jefferson, we might not have quite the language which we so easily use to say he was wrong. So it's too easy to, for example, if somebody were to say to a person today, um, do you believe in destroying the environment? And they would say, no, of course not. Are you, do you drive a car? Of course I do, I can't help it. Uh, you, we don't know what, had, what the forces were on him. It's easy to say we don't have any slaves now, so it's easy to say he was he was bad. Now I don't. I think we have to. The point is not to whitewash him or to condemn him, but to try to retain the symbol that the man represents—the symbol of the freedom of the mind and the freedom of every human being. Of course, the Constitution couldn't admit slavery. Had they tried to do that, it would have never come. To, the, the thirteen colonies would never have come together. Of course, they were blind to the position of women, and they couldn't carry that through. But all those things have been corrected. The fundamental thing about the Constitution is that it allows the United States to correct itself. Mm. 
It's always been a mess. America has always been a mess. It's always been full of contradictions. There's always been graft and greed and injustices in the, throughout this huge country. But it's always been correctable. It still is correctable. Great. I'm glad, glad <laughs> we asked that question. That was a wonder. Um, and all right, so one of, the, one of your, your, your most pressing points is that you say we must re-mythologize America. And, and, and I think the answer you just gave me gets at something that's happening in our time. It seems like we set up heroes in, simply in order to topple them, right? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, why does the word mythology have... Uh, not only have legitimacy for you, um, but 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 why is this something that you think can be part of the salvation of American democracy, if I can put it so? Well, uh, myth is uh, is a is a way of speaking about great ideas that touches the heart as well as the mind in all the world's great spiritual communications traditions. Almost always, it's been through symbol and art music and image and story myth is it has a is one meaning nowadays that means a lie a fable something wrong something you shouldn't believe that's a cheapened meaning of the word and certainly it's the way it's used now oh it's only a myth but real myth is a way of speaking in symbol in a way that touches it opens the feelings as well as the thought so we need we have these people in our psyche we have Lincoln. He's there in our mind. We have Washington. We grew up with Washington and Jefferson, and people are growing up with Adams, and people should be growing up with, with uh, uh, Frederick Douglass, who was an immensely important figure. Gosh, what discovery it was to read who Frederick Douglass is and what he meant to the country and why say, he's not— Say a little not, bit more about should, that. Well, Douglass— but Douglas, the story of Douglas, there were, there were dozens and maybe hundreds of self-freed slaves who escaped. So Douglas is one of many, but he, his struggle to just overcome his own, to escape, to run away, to overcome his slave masters, to run away through the wonderful Underground Railroad, which we also need to understand more, and to become the most stunning articulator and, and orator and the conscience of America in the 19th century. If you read even those little snippets that I put in the book, they blow you away with their power. And their... But what's interesting about Douglas, why he should be an icon for all Americans, is that he saw as more clearly as, than any of us could the evils of slavery since he was a slave, and he didn't hate America. He loved America, and he hated what America was doing with the slavery. Nowadays, people who are see what's wrong with America wind up hating America, mm -hmm. and people who wind up or are loving America don't want to see what's wrong with America. My book, I'm trying to say, America is the ideals of America can be remythologized, can be expanded and deepened to such a way to include both our great triumphs and the hope we've brought the world and also the terrible crimes we've done, it's, for example, with slavery and with the genocide of the American Indian. So D Douglas represents the conscience of America in the 19th century, and he loved America and, and despised what it was doing, and he spoke about it with tremendous insight. You can't say to Douglas, well, you don't really see how bad it is. He saw how bad it was. But you can't say to him, you can't see how good America is. He knows how good America is. So we, let's all have Douglas in our educational system as well as Jefferson. You pose a question uh, near the end of your book, I believe, your book, The American Soul. Is American necessary? Yeah. <laughs> What's your answer to that question? It is. Right now in moment, 2003. It's very necessary. America in now in the world is very necessary if it only becomes, stays what it's meant to be which is the guardian of the search for conscience, the search for goodness in people. Uh, as long as it has that going on as what it's protecting, even if the presidents and the Congress people don't know about it, then it's, it's needed in the world because the world needs people to develop into men and women of conscience. And you really, I mean, just, you know, just to underscore this, you really feel like conscience is at the heart of our democracy. Yes, I do. Without yeah, it, it it has to be. 
Otherwise, we'll, it, America may last and be stronger, but it'll perish in a, in a, very, very soon because no nation, no community can exist for very long unless it's really finds a place for conscience. This is the message handed down for thousands of years through all the prophets and teachers of the world. Okay. I think we have an interview. That's great. <laughs> well, I hope, I hope you found it. it was all right. I did. It was wonderful speaking with you. Very thank you good. so much for well, thank you. driving all that way. And well, you do give a very good interview with great questions. Great. Well, thank you. Thank you. We, when will I be able to hear uh, what um, happens with it? We will. Uh, as I said, this is going to be produced in the fall, and it aired as part yep. of a larger project. Um, we, so we have a bit more of a lead time with this th- this one than we often do. But Kate, who you communicated with, will yes. let you know. We'll send you a CD, and I'm, okay. I'm hopeful that it'll be on in San Francisco so that you'll be able to hear it there as well. Well, great. I feel that yeah. we've gotten to know each other a little. Yes. I hope to me- I'd like to meet you someday. Yes. Well, I would like to call you when I come to San Francisco. And, uh, please. Yeah, great. Please, Thanks please so do. much. All right. Okay. okay. Bye-bye. All right. Bye.